are persistent enough to dig around for answers, it often means that you're able to be in a trade much, much sooner than everybody else. And the reason why you generally want to be in that position is that if you're wrong, the downside is probably quite limited because nobody else has gotten to put that trade on anyway. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to IBKR Podcasts. I'm your host, Jeff Praisman, Interactive Broker, Senior Trading Education Specialist. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the IBKR Podcast Studio, Jan Salaji, CEO of Tago AI. Jan has spent most of his career managing global macro strategies and holds degrees in both math and economics from Yale and completed his PhD in quantitative finance at Harvard. Hi, Jan. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Jeff. It's really great to be back. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to discuss stock picking with a macro lens. But before we get started, I just want to mention how excited I am that Tago AI news feeds, market brief, and Copilot are all available free of charge to IBKR clients. That's right. Yeah. So I definitely encourage any listeners who after this are thinking this is a new tool that I'd love to try. You can sign up very easily on the third-party research services page within your IBKR account. Excellent. Um, Jan, before you started Tago AI, you were head of global macro at Lombard Odier. Could you tell us in, you know, in a nutshell what your job entailed? In fact, I'd spent a number of years even prior to that in the area of what you would call global macro investing. Um, and really, in a nutshell, as you mentioned, what that is, is trying to take a perspective through the macro lens, meaning looking at investment opportunities by taking into account the changes in the business cycle. So are we in a recession? Are we in an expansion? What's monetary policy doing? So a, a kind of a 30,000-foot perspective in contrast to what the other fundamental approach might be, where you're studying individual assets in, in, in great detail. So really macro versus micro. Macro, macro versus micro. And of course, you wouldn't ever disregard the micro, but I think that the novel approach here really was to, to appreciate the fact that the context in which businesses and currencies and um, fixed income instruments trade always does matter, at least to an extent, and can from time to time actually be a source of trading opportunities or risks as well. So let's start with the history of macro uh, lens investing. When did it first become popularized? So I think probably, at least in the hedge fund space, people will identify global macro investing primarily with the likes of George Soros. So I would say that you know it certainly dates back to the kind of the 60s or the 70s. I think it got popularized later on, but it 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 probably really bloomed with the with the ability of all of these investment managers to start trading currencies, to start trading international assets and so on, which highlighted just how much more opportunity there was beyond picking stocks within a certain index, which obviously remains the, the largest industry. So I would say it's now easily been for about 50 years or so that global macro investing has to an extent been popular. You know, you mentioned a few of the events that it kind of focused on, but what are some of the other events that it considers? Yeah, so let's take a step back for a second. The way I think one would think about global macro investing is it's usually events that can impact 
a large number of assets across different asset classes. So if you think about the investing landscape, this would be the tide going in or out as opposed to ripples on the actual surface. And I don't mean that in any kind of bad way. It's really just to highlight that, you know, if you are studying consumption and demand for, let's say, copper, or if you're trying to understand a technology business, you're really going to understand the nature of that business, the potential of that business, the management plans, and so on. What a global macro investor instead is going to do, it will say, well, okay, what kind of environment will this business have to operate when it comes to the labor market, when it comes to interest rates, when it comes to potential for other government action? And often these trends can actually overwhelm the individual forces if they're powerful enough. So the events that you could think about in this case is, and I think this was the case through 2022, you had a very aggressive Fed tightening cycle that I think very much overshadowed a lot of what was happening on the individual level for specific businesses. As a result, we ended up having a, a bear market that persisted and possibly persists into 2023. I think similarly now ahead of us is the concern about a recession in the US. Again, this is an event where even if you are an outstanding business with an amazing product, you probably do worry a little bit about what is going to happen to the demand for your product in an environment where people start to lose jobs, where actually the level of income isn't growing quite as it was before and so on. So I would generally bucket events in a number of different categories. There are things that you could call monetary policy events. So that would be actions that I think recently became more prominent because we obviously um, at least those who have lived through global financial crises have experienced things like quantitative easing in addition to just rates rising and so on and all sorts of other, other policies and programs that the, the central bank put in place. Then you would have what I would say are still in the government in the government sphere, but fiscal policy actions. And so here would be the stimulus packages that were enacted in the aftermath of the of the sort of this, the onset of the COVID pandemic, which again, as we can see even today, had an enormous impact on the economy by sending checks directly to people, really impacting that aggregate demand in the economy and so on. And then I think the third one would be probably what you would call geopolitical risks. And so again, 2022 saw no shortage of, of events in all these different buckets. And so we had the, the Russian invasion of, 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 of Ukraine, which led to shortage in supply of certain commodities. On the one hand, wheat, and then there was also concern about what, how this is going to impact energy markets and so on. So it's an incredibly fascinating area for investing. I think that there are all these different relationships that entail a number of different asset classes and forces that are at interplay with each other, which makes it often quite complex, but I think very fascinating to study, understand and invest based on. Just from what you mentioned, big government events, those big finance events, you know, inflation, the central bank trying to fight it. You know, is that why it's so relevant now to um, look at, you know, stock picking through a macro lens? Yeah, I would think that certainly we seem to be in an environment where you can tell also from just the kind of publications that are being circulated amongst investors and traders and so on. There is just uh, un maybe not unprecedented, but certainly the kind of focus on macro data points that we have not seen in a while, right? If you think about we're currently um, 
just on the doorstep of, of, of another earnings season. But yet a lot of the notes that you'll see circulated will be worrying about where the inflation print is going to come in. They'll worry about where wage growth was reported in the in the in the job market report last Friday. So there is, I think, quite a lot of of, of effort being spent by individual investors to try and understand how these macro forces might impact their portfolios because you could have done an outstanding job at stock picking or you know diversifying away from stocks into cryptocurrencies and yet then an event like this one can bring all of these valuations down and down by by a huge margin so it's hard to tell when this environment ends i think at some point the macro is going to be more in the background it doesn't seem like 2023 is necessarily the year when that's going to happen it's interesting that you just said it's hard to tell when this is going to end because i'm actually going to skip ahead to a question i was going to ask you later but it seems like a, a good time and my question is what is a suitable time frame for investing using a macro lens is it you know is it best for short mid long-term investments or is it really just depend on there's particular events that are affecting that, you know, that macro environment. You know, that's an excellent question. And actually, I think it's hard to pin it down to a specific horizon because I can give you examples of, for example, macro trades that were quite a short horizon. You would have you would you would have examples of, in fact, even in, in, in very recent history, when the mini budget was announced in the UK and as a result, um, fixed income instruments and the currency had huge moves in a very short span of time. So, for example, if you were a macro trader in, in that environment, it's definitely something that you were paying attention to. And it was almost instantaneous, the impact that it had on a wide variety of assets from stocks to currencies to, to fixed income. Probably as a rule, it does tend to be a little bit more medium term. In other words, the forces that you are trying to figure out do operate over longer term horizons. If you are, for example, thinking about the Fed tightening cycle or about um, a recession, these are not events that are going to be over in a week or two. They'll tend to have a much more drawn out impact on a variety of assets. So I would say the horizon typically would be somewhere between three to six months. But again, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to be too dogmatic about that. What part does the yield curve, you know, play with in investing with a macro lens? A little bit of context. I think one of the one of the problems with trying to anticipate inflection points in the business cycle is that it obviously entails forecasting a very, very complex mechanism and how it's going to behave. As I think is well-documented, macroeconomists have not done a great job at forecasting big recessions, big turns in the business cycle. And I think for good reason, I mean, in fairness to them, it's effectively trying to anticipate the actions of a very large number of actors and that is just a very, very tough thing to do. The reason why I'm the reason why I'm bringing this up is that there are, however, a few kind of go-to indicators that markets will necessarily look to in order to at least have some idea as to whether or not an inflection point is coming. And the yield curve is probably the most celebrated one of all of them because when you look at the historical record, it does seem like it has typically been quite a good indicator of, of, of recessions. When the yield curve inverts, which is when the, when the longer-term yields are suddenly below the short-term yields, almost inevitably, but unfortunately with an unpredictable lag, you had a recession follow 
not too long after. And that I think is stands in stark contrast to the stock market that, you know, the longstanding joke, um, and you can use whatever numbers you want, but the, the stock market has predicted the last, you know, the last seven, seven of the last three recessions. It's for that reason that people focus quite a lot on the yield curve because the, the thinking is interest rates flow through the whole economy. We price assets off of them. Mortgage rates are priced off of them. They really do determine a number of valuation models. They drive all sorts of things that are ultimately defining the monetary side of the economy. And to the extent that that's true, a big move up or down in interest rates usually does is able to actually cause a change or an inflection point in the in the business cycle, not just anticipating it, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And, you know, while we're talking about macro and, and you know, obviously stocks are not in a vacuum or the, the world's not in a vacuum. And, you know, while there's global events going on that are considered the macro events, what are some of the micro, you know, the fundamental and technical factors that you would, you know, also recommend investors look at? When I picture macro and micro, I sort of picture macro being a big circle and then micro being a smaller circle in that loop. And to get the real valuation of a company or a sector, you're sort of using some sort of combination of both in a way. Whether or not you're leaning mostly toward macro or leaning mostly toward micro, in your opinion, what, what are some of the more important fundamentals and technical factors that you look at or you recommend investors to look at? Yeah, so I think the starting point probably for any assessment or any search for investment opportunities or risks, I think would start with the kind of the interest rate cycle, right? You've First, you need to think about whether or not as the market is pricing and as the Fed is saying, are we still in a tightening or an easing environment? I think that actually very clearly sets the tone for the kind of opportunities that I think you might be able to anticipate because it then, it then distills down to the kind of sectors you might look at within the within the, the 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 stock market it also defines what kind of currency crosses you would like to look at and so on i think short of that then of course things that one wants to pay attention to are things higher frequency indicators of the job market so of course every 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 month we get a a, a very comprehensive report on the labor market but there are a number of faster moving higher frequency indicators that have typically been better at signaling again either a loosening or a tightening of the of the of the labor market before that was apparent in the unemployment rate or in the in the in the non-farm payroll number. One example of that would be the weekly jobless claims. So these are the claims that are filed by people who who have 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 lost their jobs. And so it 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 shows the kind of the weaker side of the job market, which is how many people are currently losing their jobs. And historically, when we've seen a big sudden rise in that number, and we may be on the verge of that now, actually, it anticipated a much, much bigger dislocation in the, in the job market as a whole. Now, moving away from just the, the, the macro indicators to maybe more market or technical indicators, I think you know the important things that you are always looking at are certain trend lines, because to the extent that we discussed before that macro tends to operate over longer term horizons, what you really want to look at when you're evaluating certain assets is whether or not there is any sense in which um, the price action looks like it's departing from the prevailing trend. Is the price actually struggling to continue the path that it's been on for the last six to 12 months? Or is it actually 
even going very clearly the opposite direction. And so then the question on your mind must be, is this actually the peak as the question may be? And are other more fundamental drivers supporting that view? And this is where you then go even deeper and dig around at the, at the micro level and try to understand whether or not anything in the earnings announcements or other news about the company is confirming that what you are thinking from the macro perspective is now being manifested also in the in the in the in the in, in the results of this company's reporting and so on. So you know there's no there's no golden set of indicators you'd say okay it's always a go-to but I would say some combination of setting the tone which is what the macro indicators do with more tactical indicators that are on the technical side or with, uh, with, with company fundamentals is usually the approach that a lot of macro investors will take. Got it, got it. And what's, you know, what's one of the more interesting moments when, you know, that you've experienced when decision-making with a macro perspective really paid off? Probably the one, I think, um, if, we, if we think back to the global financial crisis, you know, one, this was at a time when I was um, an analyst with, uh, with, with, with Stanley Druckenmiller at his global macro hedge fund, Duquesne Capital. And what you know, we were paying quite a lot of attention to at the time is what was a very apparent dislocation of this one variable, which was residential investment as proportion of GDP, which prior to sort of 2007, 2006 had been what looked like kind of mean reverting. You had these mini housing cycles, but there were nothing to really write home about. However, prior to 07, 08, you, you saw this just incredible jump in the proportion that residential investments started to contribute to the overall GDP. And that kind of raised that a couple of eyebrows because people thought, well, wait a second, how is it that suddenly, you know, 15% of the economy seems to all be coming from construction? That just doesn't feel like it's sustainable. And so that set off a chain reaction of analysis that ultimately led to discovering what's going on with the mortgages and how the interest rate cycle might impact those and the exposure the banks have had and the shortage of capital that they might have. So it, it started with a very benign chart and it filtered down to some very ultimately profitable and actually I would say risk management, risk managing um, trades that really helped us avoid the, the kind of debacle that obviously was experienced by the market as a whole that might have been a little bit more blindsided by what was happening at the macro level and continue to be focused much more on individual stocks. So it really allowed you, almost, almost like a uh, treasure map in a way where it really allowed you to follow the clues and find the... That's exactly right. And I think you know what makes global macro managers like Stan really outstanding at their job is that they're able to discern some of these patterns, but they also really pursue they doggedly pursue the clues to try to really understand what is this, something in this doesn't make sense. It's out of whack with historical experience. And this is not to say that history always re repeats itself, but there's a reason why certain variables tend to be cyclical. And when you see big departure from that, it raises a lot of questions. If you are persistent enough to dig around for answers, it often means that you're able to be in a trade much, much sooner than everybody else and the reason why you generally want to be in that position is that if you're wrong, the downside is probably quite limited because nobody else has gotten to put that trade on anyway. Everybody's the other way. And so if you're wrong, really probably nothing will happen. 
If you're right, however, you're going to be sitting there watching everybody else come to the same realization you did, start to move the price in your favor. And so you'll be able to start actually taking some profit by the time the latecomers are actually only just putting on the trade. So, so that leads me to another question. How effective is, you know, backtesting fundamentals against, you know, macro events since the combination of, you know, the various micro and macro events really made different, almost, I want to say infinite amount of combinations, but certainly no shortage of combinations you can have between them. And, you know, how does AI help with this? So this obviously is now at the heart of what we also have set out to do at Toggle AI, because I think for us, the key, the key insight was that we have a lot of data at our disposal. We should be able to highlight some of these developments and patterns early on. The problem really is that when you're trying to do that as a, as, 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 as a human analyst, there's just too much to look through. And this is where machines can really shine, because if you effectively task the machine to go through, let's say, three and a half to four million time series, which we do on a regular basis every day, in fact, it really allows you to catch some of the dislocations that I was mentioning before much, much sooner. Now, the thing that a machine is also then able to do is to do something that normally would take decades of investing experience to arrive at, at, at which is realize that something that is happening now might mirror, not mirror, but might resemble some of the events that have previously happened in the past. So you start to understand the sensitivity. For example, when you know interest rates start to rise, it obviously drives up mortgage rates, and that has historically impacted home builders. This is something that anybody who's been through more than one business cycle would immediately understand and go to. If it's your first one, maybe that's not the thought that occurs to you right away, but it will to your machine. Your machine will immediately highlight that actually the price action in home builders is starting to sag because presumably the interest rate cycle is starting to really impact that demand. And so the outlook for the sector has now deteriorated. This is where I think the combination of having this, this the, the, the help of this immense computing power that something that a, a system like Toggle can bring to this is extremely helpful because what it does is it distills this vast number of possible variables down to a few, down to a few things that you as an analyst can now focus on and say, okay, this looks like it's actually quite a unique event. Let me think through the implications that that might have for my portfolio and maybe for some of the names on my watch list. And so it gives you an immediate head start versus you trying to, you know, dig through a lot of charts yourself and then look for what makes sense, what doesn't make sense and so on. That kind of in a nutshell is where I think this human AI combination can be just incredibly powerful. And, you know, with our with our modern investing world, it's, there's just so much data available. As you're saying, you know, some of the data is useful. Some of the data is just going to be noise. And some of the data might just be plain wrong. So it seems like AI really helps the analyst or the individual investor filter through it and make some sense of it. I think so. This is to me the equivalent of how we continue to invest without some of the machine assistance is the way we used to drive with sort of paper maps right like imagine if each time when you're trying to look for a turn or somewhere you were reaching into into the glove compartment you bring out a map now you're looking to see, oh where's the nearest gas station the map might be outdated because you don't know if somebody's actually giving you a new one and so on so there are just all these opportunities for error 
Whereas the modern driving experience is that you obviously have GPS system in the car. The, the two are connected so that actually when you're running low on gas, the car automatically suggests the nearest gas station. There are all these things that you don't have to think about anymore. And because you don't have to think about them anymore, I think it genuinely makes you a better driver. You're just not preoccupied about things that the machine can sort of take off your plate. And so instead you can focus on things that maybe the machine can't do for you, which is at the moment, the actual driving, you know, unless, unless you take um, Tesla Copilot too seriously or autopilot rather. And so I would imagine that this is where definitely the future is going, which is having these kinds of smart assistants become a much, much bigger presence on the investing side. And actually, ironically, I think they're going to be more helpful even for the individual investor than they are for the institutional investor, because the institutional investor is having to make a trade-off between the suite of tools they're already using, whereas an individual investor is currently operating off things like Yahoo Finance and so on. And so I think the upgrade is going to feel just much, much more dramatic. Like they're going from a bicycle to an electric car, right? Like it's going to feel unbelievably better. And, you know, with the individual investor, I'd like to kind of finish it up with what are some of the traps that they should be aware of when they're when they're stock picking through a macro lens? I mean, I think that the first thing to kind of keep in mind is that you really want to you really want to make sure that you understand the connections that you're betting on if you're looking at something like this. So there's obviously plenty of data. But if you are deciding to, for example, you know, buy bank stocks because interest rates are rising, then you want to really understand the connect, which kind of interest rate is rising and which banks might benefit from this so that you're not just assuming, okay, well, somebody told me on a podcast a while back that yields are going up, I should be buying banks. And so that's that, right? It does require taking a step back and really making sure that you understand the linkages fully, just as you presumably would when you're doing or buying a stock on the basis of its own individual merits. You're also obviously trying to make sure you really understand the underlying fundamentals and so on. Maybe the other one that I would say is that, again, going back to your point about the horizon, macro forces tend to take a much, much longer time to manifest themselves. And so, you know, you might read about the Fed tightening cycle, you put on a trade, but actually nothing happens for maybe two, three months. It really requires a kind of a more patient investor that says, look, I'm going to put this trade on. I understand what the relationship is here, and I'm not even going to look at it until maybe six or nine months from now. That, I think, is probably one of the harder hurdles for people to get over because I think a lot of investing tends to be done with much, much higher frequency. There's a level of impatience that I think people usually bring to investing that makes macro more difficult for an individual investor, even if they get comfortable with the relationships that they're betting on. Yeah, I mean, I think there's proof of that just from the fact that the exchanges are listing daily options at this point for investors. So That's right. it's not even weekly at this point. You know, everyone wants wants to make the money right now and, and not sort of uh, have a long-term output. Well, Jan, this has been great. And, you know, once again, I want to thank you for stopping by our, our studio at IBKR podcast. For more from Jan and Toggle, please go to our website under education to view previous web webinars and podcasts, as well keep an eye out for any upcoming live events. To learn more specifically on stock picking through a macro lens, check out Jan's webinar from October 12th. I also want to remind everyone that you can find all our podcasts on our website under education. Scroll down to IPKR Podcasts or on Spotify, Apple Music, 
Amazon Music, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and Audible. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Jeff Praisman with Interactive Brokers. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice. Ivy Global Investments LLC, a subsidiary of Interactive Brokers Group Inc., the parent company of Interactive Brokers LLC, is a minority owner of Toggle AI. There's a substantial risk of loss in foreign exchange trading. The settlement date of foreign exchange trades can vary due to time zone differences and bank holidays. The interest rate on borrowed funds must be considered when computing the cost of trades across multiple markets. Hedge funds are highly speculative and investors may lose their entire investment. Trading in digital assets, including cryptocurrencies, is especially risky and is only for individuals with a high risk tolerance and the financial ability to sustain losses. Eligibility to trade in digital asset products may vary based on jurisdiction. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page.